<coughs> um, do you want to sit in the middle? There? Oh, me in the middle. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. He's the director. He thinks he can boss me about and tell me where to move. <laughs> That's I'm your sitting seat. in the wrong seat. <laughs> uh, welcome back uh, and welcome to the two men behind this wonderful production, Jonathan Kent and David Hare. <laughs> um, David, you said such an interesting thing to me. You said this show is thrashing around in the British theatre like an elephant in the undergrowth with no one quite knowing what to say about it. Uh, yes. Uh, I suppose that what attracted me to it was its uh, complete unusualness and exactly the mix of qualities that James McArdle spoke about. You know, I came to London when I was um, 13 for the first time to see a play, and the first play I saw was The Caretaker uh, with Alan Bates. And then, you know, pretty soon after, I saw Paul Schofield play King Lear, and I saw Oh, What a Lovely War, and I saw Maggie Smith play the recruiting officer. And then I happened to be walking past the Royal Court Theatre one day, and I saw there was a first night, and there was one ticket left in the balcony for Nicol Williamson in Inadmissible Evidence. And I think more and more, all I'm interested in is those kind of shows that people will say, my God, I saw such and such. Because when you're young, those things make such an incredible effect on you. And I wanted to do something where you'd say, I saw James McArdle play Peter Gint or play Peer Gint. And I think there, is, there are some people who come up to me and say, in the street, actually, and say, my God, I saw Peter Gint. And I, all I want now as a writer is to do those evenings that are completely unusual and which aren't like everything else that goes on. I feel less and less connection with everything else that goes on. And I feel more and more that I want to do unique things, as with Jonathan and, and with James. Is there a way that you could describe it? What would you call it? Well, it's a fantasy, really, isn't it? But it's a fantasy that takes in so many different genres. But essentially, it's, it's about mortality. And at the end of it is this astonishingly original view of mortality, which is that you will not go to heaven or hell, uh, but that you will be melted down if you were mediocre and that most people are indeed mediocre. And it's such an astonishingly original way of looking at death. And so two things are happening, I think, in Ibsen. One is the rise of capitalism, and he's saying that society is going to be atomized and we are more and more going to be individuals and we're going to define ourselves by telling the story of our own myth, giving your own narrative. I did this, you know, redemptive narratives are now very popular on Netflix. The moment came when I realized, you know, and that you will shape your narrative, which is unique to you and which makes you unlike other human beings. And he could see that was the direction capitalism was going to take people. And that, over 200 years, is exactly what's happened. You know, people are more and more atomized. But he also could see that the belief in a Christian God who would, in Judgment Day, say, you go up or you go down, um, it was unlikely to be maintained through the 19th century. And he's saying those two things. And he's saying, actually, what's much more likely is that everybody's going to meet the same fate, <laughs> apart from very exceptional people on one side or the other. And even Peter is not exceptional enough, in spite of the fact that his whole life has been about trying to be exceptional. 
And that's all he wants, is to be exceptional, not to be ordinary. He says, I have a horror of being ordinary. But at the end of it, his face is completely ordinary. Mm -hmm. At what point did you get involved then? Oh, well, I asked David to do it. I talked to James uh, about doing it three, three or four years ago and uh, asked David to do it. And he spent, I think, a year saying, oh, I'm not going to do it. Why would I do that? Oh, can't we do Doll's House or something? And uh, <laughs> I, 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 I think you're thinking of another writer. <laughs> that was probably Chris, Christopher said, Hampton. Said, can't we do Doll's House? No, he didn't say Doll's House. What did you say? You said Wild Duck. Um, oh, yeah. So, <laughs> then he said, well, I'm only going to do it if I can do my play, my version of it, which is exactly what I, I'd hoped. And, and it is, it's entirely true to the spirit of Ibsen, but it's tampered, the letter is tampered with by, by David Hare. So it's a meeting of, you know, of a great contemporary writer and one of the greatest writers of, of, of our culture. And uh, that, I think, is, is thrilling. Um, I mean, originally, though, I mean, when it was written, 1867, I think, 40 scenes, really unwieldy. And in fact, I think he didn't No, but he didn't it want it to be performed. Yes. He wrote it as a poem. And then what happened was that Grieg wrote the music, which he hated. Um, <laughs> but because the music had been written, it became, as it were, inevitable that the play would be presented in order to have the music. And there's a wonderful essay by Tyrone Guthrie, who did the most famous British production of this play ever, which was the one with Ralph Richardson at the New Theatre in 1947, where Laurence Olivier played uh, the button moulder. Um, Sybil Thorndike played the mother. But the, in his introduction, Tyrone Guthrie said, you know, the misfortune of this play is to be tied to music, which is totally inappropriate for it. And the music sends exactly the wrong message throughout in, in, in terms of what the text is actually saying. And that kind of lyrical loveliness of the music is really absolutely nothing to do with what Ibsen was writing about. I, th I think uh, Ibsen, it wasn't that he didn't want it to be performed. He just thought it could never be yeah. performed. So, so it was a... And he wrote it abroad. He wrote it in Italy. He wrote it on one of his... Well, his exile from, from Norway. And so it's Norway, it's about the bourgeoisie, the Norwegian bourgeoisie at a distance, and his loathing of it, actually. Mm. It, just the, the fact that you knew it would be, and he knew, I guess, that it would be fantastically difficult to stage, did that affect the writing process? Were you writing that with it in mind? Well, how hard it was going to be. Well, the whole, um, you know, the, the only reason I change, you know, I'm rather puritanical about not messing around with author's work. So that when I did The Master Builder, I tried as best I could to write a version of The Master Builder which was contemporary, but which actually was exactly what Ibsen wrote. Because the play is a brilliant play in which the, the only job of the adapter is to try and work out what the hell he's trying to say. Because what he is trying to say in The Master Builder is incredibly obscure and difficult to dig out. Um, out on, uh, to the opposite, when you take imperfect works, then I think I'm liberated to do what I want to do. Platonov, obviously, is an imperfect work. It's eight hours long. That one I messed around with. I would never have dreamt of me messing around with the seagull. It seems completely stupid to me to take the seagull and reposition it in, 
you know, Eastbourne on a wet Wednesday. It just is completely pointless doing that, in my view. It's, it's what um, Jonathan Miller calls schlepping a play 200 miles up the motorway. Uh, and it's just, it's, it's, just, it's just a meaningless thing to do. The, on, the only things that are worth transposing, and I did it with the Schnitzler, with Reigen, which is more commonly known as La Ronde, which became the Blue Room, which was the only other time I've been completely free but I'm free because the play is unplayable. The play is imperfect and everyone knows it's imperfect. It can't be played. So let's try and make something which can be played out of this great unplayable poem. And how much input did you have into that process? Well, I think, you know, David and I fortunately worked together for what, 20 years, I suppose, on and off. And yes, we did. We, we, we did workshops, we did readings of it. And also we talked about it, you know, David is great friend of mine and so it was 28 years we haven't worked together for 28 we haven't yeah yeah have we yeah. oh my god um uh, uh, um so it yes it was i mean the great one of the great satisfactions of doing this play and working with david and working with james it, it is what i always dream theater will be it's a collaboration it's a collaborative art theater and uh of course, it's David's version. Of course, it's James' performance. And of course, it's my production. But we arri we've arrived at a common goal. And our, our journeys have been, I'm trying to think of a less sentimental way of saying hand in hand, but you know what I mean, uh, have been in, in sync. Well, the Scottishness is, is absolutely, that's, that, you know, when James was saying that I can't pronounce the word Danoon correctly, <laughs> Uh, <laughs> actually, my mother was Scottish. She came from Paisley. And so I've never written in what you might call my own accent. Namely, that's, that's the accent that I grew up with because my father was away all the time. So I listened to my mother's voice all the time. My mother spoke in a broad Scottish accent, a Paisley accent. And my first instinct was to set it in Paisley or set it in Greenock, which is actually or Greenock, I think I should say, where, uh, is it Greenock? Greenock, yeah. Greenock, yeah. Oh. <laughs> um, I, I'm going to get nothing right. Uh, but at least I wasn't pelted at the Edinburgh Festival. Um, but but at, in Greenock, where my parents met, that seemed, but actually it was James who came up with the idea and said, Danoon is perfect because it's got, it's a miserable town. And, and yet, Behind it is grand scenery, and that is absolutely perfect for running up a mountain from a miserable, uh, you know, working-class town, which is what we wanted. And so that's how the collaboration worked. It worked with Jonathan throwing things into the pot, James throwing things into the pot, and, and it evolved. It, my first version was far too much a satire on male chauvinism. It would have become completely exhausting because it was absolutely about nothing except the overarching uh, male ego. Um, and I, I, in, in the version we ended up with, we get out of that quite quickly because, you know, the joke is only so funny and I hope it, it doesn't overstay its welcome now. And so how much change was there then from that initial I idea? I mean, quite a lot, loads, I think. Yeah. It's a loads. lot. It, it evolved a lot. I mean, the... The skeleton of it was, stay, has stayed pretty much the same, but it has evolved a huge amount. Actually. Mm. And it did even during previews. It cut, we cut and changed it. 
I even made some changes after the Edinburgh Festival. I mean, I don't, I don't think it'll ever settle. It's one of those plays that won't settle because almost by definition, it's like a cathedral and you have to keep repainting a little window over there. Or you have to do, do that. We changed something very recently. It, it, you, you just, you, it evolves and exactly as James said, and I was so thrilled to hear him say that, it shines at a different angle according to what the news is that day. You know, and it, 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 you can feel people think about separate sections differently. And that, that to me, is the sign of um, Ibsen's, you know, there's just a timeless relevance about the way Ibsen writes. You know. James also said it was the sort of show you had to wrestle to the ground. Yeah, he, yeah, and I think all great classical parts, and this is a great classical part, demands that what part of the thrill of watching great classic plays is the gladiatorial aspect of it. It's too, it's an actor meeting an impossible part, or, a, a, yes, an impossible part. And exactly as he says, wrestling it to the ground. That's the thrill of classic theater. I, I read a young playwright the other day saying, I think it's rude to write a play that lasts more than an hour. Uh, because people haven't got that much time and really what arrogance to detain people for more than an hour. And I feel very strongly that all plays should be under an hour. And it's a, it's a way of thinking about theatre which is um, contemporary, clearly, because you know there are a lot of reviews of plays that say this play is a lovely 90 minutes and I can have dinner afterwards. And it's so not what I went into the theatre for or wanted from the theatre. And this, this, this thing that great plays could give you, that less great plays couldn't give you, um, as, is so against the feeling of the time. That's what I meant by the elephant thrashing around in the undergrowth. And you could feel in the early performances that the audience was completely bewildered by the play. And you could feel they were sitting there going, I have absolutely no idea how to react to this. And it is true that both the actors moving to own it more and the fact that we went to Edinburgh where it was completely un understood with Scottish, for some reason, being much more ease with the mix of genre um, that transformed the feeling in the auditorium. Would you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. Scotland, it was great. I mean, it was, in a sense, it was the play going home. And, uh, you know, three quarters of the company are Scots. But the Scots, it wasn't just that, oh, look, there's Martin Quinn. It was, um, it was that it was somehow the, the spirit of it accorded a, a lot with, with a, a Scottish sensibility. And uh, what's interesting is coming back to London f from having done it in Scotland, there's, and I saw it, I'd been away, and I saw it last night for the first time for a couple of months, oh, since Scotland, actually. And... Um, it was interesting, there was a difference, it was sort of indefinable, but there was a sort of confidence, not being arrogant, not an arrogant confidence, but there was a sort of confidence, they'd been validated by Scotland, and they brought that back to London. And uh, in a sense, I regret that we didn't open in Scotland and bring it back here. Um, I think that might have shifted it, and, and uh, it, but, but the performances now have a kind of four-square, take-it-or-leave-it quality, and also a quality of, hello, folks, this is what we do, 
come with us. Uh, and absolutely no sense of wanting to be liked, which is... Um, <laughs> but that's, you know, there are, there are, there are forms of theatre that don't... There are kinds of theatre which, which seduce an audience, and then there are other kinds of theatre which are about, uh, about the audience admiring and being, uh, being, hopefully, dazzled by it, but not being seduced by it. And there, and there, there are two kinds of theatre, and I think this is the latter. Um, it's, it's, not a, it's not an ingratiating play remotely. Uh, which doesn't mean it's not moving. It's, it's incredible, I find, incredibly moving. It is, you know, it, you do feel at the end of the evening that you've borne witness to a man's life, a whole life, and that you've borne witness to life at its most ridiculous, at its most tragic, and at its most glorious. And that's where, where it is, for me, and actually it's very interesting coming back to seeing a play that you, you last saw, a while ago, um, because doing any production, sorry, I know I'm waffling all over the place, but, um, but doing a production, once you, while you're doing a production, you sort of, it's like falling in love. You fall in love with the production. You think this is great, you think they are great, and then you go away, and then you come back, and it's like meeting somebody that you were in love with, and you think, what possessed me? And, um, <laughs> but actually, funnily enough, I came back last night, and I thought, that possessed me. I, this is a play which I think is as great as any Shakespeare. I think it is, it's very like Pericles. It's, it's a quest play. It's a, it's a man in pursuit of his own life and at the end of it discovers he's been on a false trail, which is, it's, is a tragedy. Yeah. But it is a quest play. I mean, what, what it reminds me of, and uh -uh. I, I don't know if anybody in this room saw it, but one of the last things that Howard Davis did, who, God, we miss him so terribly in this theater. Um, but one of the things he, the last things he did was The Silver Tassie by Sean O'Casey. And it's the same thing that as a writer, you just sit there going, oh my God, Sean O'Casey thinks he's Shakespeare. And he's, you know, suddenly he's gone from a room in, in Dublin to the First World War. You suddenly go, oh, we're now in the trenches. And it's that Shakespearean sweep that O.K.C. and of course it was hugely unpopular at the time. Yeats told him that it was a complete no-go and that he wouldn't do it at the Abbey. And everyone says, oh, this problem play, this difficult play. I just sat at the Silver Tassie in floods of tears. And it's partly that it's so moving that a writer like O.K.C. or like Ibsen is tr trying to do what Shakespeare does. And the, the, the snobbery is that everyone accepts that some parts of Shakespeare are very bad and boring and that other people, bits are great. And you go through, oh, that's the boring bit in Shakespeare. Or when you go to the opera, there's all that boring bit. And everyone goes, oh yeah, everyone knows that bit's boring. But then here comes the wonderful bit. And Shakespeare's allowed to do that and everyone still says he's great. But when Ibsen does it, people say, oh, well, it's a very uneven play, you know. Oh, it's very, very uneven. Well, you know, All's well that ends well ain't so even, you know? <laughs> it, it's pretty much 90% trudge to 10% glory, you know? And Ibsen is a lot more glory and a lot less trudge. Can we talk about the staging of it? Because I think, uh, I mean, it's absolutely uh, so visually arresting, but really, really simple. And I, I wondered about what made that side of the production work. 
Well, it is partly to, to produce 46 different scenes. And that, that means that, well, and also to what I thought, what we all agreed, it needed to move at breakneck speed, the production did. Because what you couldn't do is do what I assume Ibsen detested about the Greek. You couldn't stop for it, you know, to admire things. You had to keep moving on. Because it is a roller coaster, pell-mell uh, 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 odyssey of a man's life. And uh, that was what was sort of important to, to, um, to provide a, a forum for. And also to provide a forum for, well, particularly James, but all the company. Um, so what I hope is this is a kind of, yeah, a, a, a space for the actor to, actor to take us through. Mm. But I mean, the wonderfully inventive, the, the troll table with the lit up plates and the, the shipwreck. I mean, that looked incredibly difficult to achieve. Yeah, yeah, it is. I, I, it, it was, it was. And, uh, you know, that's what's wonderful about being in the Olivier in that you have these, these facilities. And it's, it, from that point of view, it's been a, from that point of view, it's, it's a theatre unlike any other. And I was very keen that we do it here, with that we don't do a, a, a studio production. I've seen it about four or five times, and what I wanted to do, what I think we all wanted to do, was address the play head on, not just sort of slim it down and, 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 and uh, contain it, is to allow the, the size and the, the scope of it to... to um, to be there. Mm -hmm. You've mentioned, you've both mentioned the, the Grieg music, uh, but of course you had music especially commissioned uh, for this, uh, Paul, uh, Paul Englishby. T tell me about that. Was it, again, a collaborative process? Yes, he, he's worked with David uh, many times. Yeah, I mean, uh, Paul, Paul Englishby is a wonderful composer who wrote the um, music for the films about Johnny Warrico that Bill Nye is in, and he wrote the, <laughs> the famous Warrico theme. Uh, for which he, you know, was um, garlanded with prizes and which, uh, you know, is like the James Bond theme. When you're making those films, you just have to go, oh, my God, when is Paul, Paul's theme coming back? Um, but I love him because he's a real theatre composer and he completely understands the theatre. And his music is a reaction to what's going on that the actors are doing. And it's not imposed like a, like a straitjacket on the play but it's a response to what he sees on the rehearsal yeah, floor. Yeah, and, and he, he's a brilliant pasticha too. And we needed, we wanted at times, quite apart from the music of the piece and the, the theme of when, the theme of a sort of quest theme of, 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 Jane, of uh, uh, Peter's arrival and his journey. But we also need, it needed to be studied with these, with studied with these pastiches of, for the cowgirls, for instance, or, 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 or the um, Anitra and people like that. Can you tell us a bit about the, uh, the rehearsal process? It was, it was great. I mean, it was because it was such a really tight, I know, I know directors, and it's all the sort of sentimental theatrical stuff, that, oh, you know, it's a wonderful company. It is a wonderful company. Uh, as I said, three quarters three-quarters Scots, and then a sort of layer of marvellous 
British actors, all playing sort of power parts. Scots are British too. I was uh, English. I know, I know, I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. He's South African. Sperry Armour. Um, uh, uh, he, ha he hasn't been here long enough to <laughs> work out the subtleties. Well, it's not for long, um, unfortunately. Uh, but, um, yeah, there, there's a sort of and wonderful, uh, the best kind of British actors, English actors, um, uh, and the, Scot this, the central body of Scots actors. So it was... Um, it was entirely pleasurable. It was very hard work because it's a vast, sprawling play. It's a great sort of portmanteau play, and as, as we were saying, or James was saying earlier, you know, there's, there's so many styles and genres rammed into it. So it was, it was quite hard to arrive at that. Um, but it was such a good company that it was not, never anything but it, uh, exciting. Really exciting. Yeah, it's so so topical. It feels so topical, and I wonder if current events were affecting you as you were writing. No, it. I was. I, 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 you know, I, I really didn't want to get into Trumpian satire. I know I sort of, uh, I, I, I veer near the Trump thing in the in the golf course in Florida, but that's really as close as I wanted to get to anything specific. And I didn't want there to be. I didn't want it to be, as it were coded so that it was oh he's getting at this or he's getting at and i try and keep it as um non-specific as possible so that it's uh, it's there but it's not and if you choose to find the trump thing i mean the trump the, the the obviously the trump parallel is the idea that you invent your own narrative and that you um just say anything you like in order to pretend that you've had a story I, I, was I was slightly influenced by a wonderful thing I heard Gloria Steinem say. And Gloria Steinem said that actually, if Donald Trump had taken the money that he inherited from his father and just put it in stocks and shares, like any normal investor, he would be far richer than he is today. And, and that, in other words, the whole narrative that Trump has created about himself, which is, I am a brilliant investor, I am a brilliant businessman, I am a brilliant deal, deal maker. It's just complete rubbish. You know, he actually is just a rich boy who inherited a lot of money, which he's played around with, but hasn't done particularly well with, considering the amount he inherited. And that just seemed to me a Button Mulder's remark that Gloria Steinem was making. That's exactly what the Button Mulder would have said to Peter Ginn. He would have said, yeah, you did quite well, but actually, you know, you didn't do that well. And it, it's, it, it was that spirit that, of, that you always know when you're writing Peter Gint, that the button Mulder is waiting at the end to put everything in this incredible perspective. And that, that's what makes, to me, that's what makes the play so great. It is a completely great play. Who's, the, who's your button Mulder in your life? Do you oh have gosh. one? Gosh. Well, not yet. I hope not. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm hoping to stave him off for a little bit. I don't know. But what, what, what would either of your button moulders be saying to you? Oh, you oh know. gosh. I'll try not to think of that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's no, there's no shortage of um, self-doubt. I don't need somebody to embody it for me, thank you. <laughs> 
However, if it's got to be anybody, I'd love Oliver Ford Davis to do it. Oh, yeah. Great. <laughs> we, all want, we all want Oliver to come and meet us when, he, when we die. And it, it's just, uh, it's very original because, you know, normally death is this figure with a scythe or this person who's coming to do violence to you or you cross sticks and the figure that takes you across the sticks is not a friendly figure at all. But to be met by Oliver Ford Davis, and he, he's really quite sympathetic to Benign, Gint. yeah. He, he's actually saying, you know, I know this isn't pleasant for you, but this is something that you are going to have to do unless you can plead. And he's open to being pleaded to. And he says, if you want to convince me, please convince me that you don't have to die yet. And it's a very, very original transaction with death. And again, it's something completely unique in literature, I think. And it's not as it were, the axe coming down and chopping your head off. It's something much more thoughtful and humane, actually, which I think is why it's such a moving scene. I must just pick up on one line in the play uh, and ask you perhaps the most important question of the night, David, and it's, do you have a Nando's black card? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why this, this line gets this unbelievable reaction. I mean. One of, the, one of the things about writing plays that's so fascinating is the stuff that you think people are going to react to and then they don't, they just sit completely stony-faced. And then, you know, suddenly, you know, I'm, it's carnival time when I make this joke about a Nando's black card. I think we don't expect you to even know what Nando's is. Oh, please. Uh, <laughs> it's just, it, the, the approach to the humour, I admit, is scattergun, but that is one of the places where the gun hits the target, it seems. David Hare, Jonathan Kent, thank you so thank much. Thank you very much. Thank you, Orla. Thank you, Georgina. Thank you. Thank you.